Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Morgan Davis. She is founder and managing partner at Davis Legal. We're going to talk about the world of cannabis, the world of law, and kind of the interesting, fun, usually complex, (laughs) and somewhat unknown areas of cannabis law and running a cannabis business and the things you need to think about. And just because of the nature of cannabis, it's obviously a little more complicated than traditional businesses. Um, and so we're going to talk about really what goes into that. Where are we from a industry point of view and what you need to kind of know, questions you need to ask, things that things you may want to think about if you're either operating or thinking about operating in various aspects of the cannabis industry. So with all that, Morgan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bruce. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. So before we kind of dive into the world of cannabis and law, let's do a little background. Uh, okay. How'd you get into law? How'd you get into cannabis? Give us the backstory. Sure. So I, uh, I went, when I went to college, I got a love for politics and a love for social work. Specifically, I loved working with juveniles going through the juvenile detention center. Mm-hmm. And um, thinking about what I was going to do moving forward after that, it was either become a lawyer or become a social worker. And after working with social workers a little bit, I decided on becoming a lawyer. 
and uh, went to law school. When I was in law school, fell in love with criminal work, specifically criminal defense, loved being in a courtroom. That was the first seven years of my legal practice was spending every day, both on the, I worked for the state for the first two years, and then I transitioned into private practice. Mm-hmm. But after that, it's interesting. And, and I feel like this is the story with anybody who's in the cannabis business, right? You get into it because something happens to you personally that brings yeah. you to the plant yeah. and to the industry. And at the same time, you then decide to make it your career. So for me, I, I had this huge, a bunch of life changes happen in a short period of time. I developed some very serious issues with anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's crippling. And cannabis and other plant medicines were the only things that really helped me. I tried therapy. I tried over-the-counter medications, I, prescriptions, everything. And none of it, I could function, but I, I was really missing out on life yeah. and felt very out of control. And cannabis and plant medicine gave that back to me. And so around this time, I decided to leave criminal defense, strike out on my own, thought I was going to be going into politics. And about three weeks after I made that decision, the 2018 Farm Bill passed and I was getting all these calls about people who wanted to operate in the hemp and CBD space in North Carolina. And so it just sort of all happened at the right time. And a combination of personal experience and, and world events. And here I am. Yeah. And what did that actually mean? Like as, as you started working in the cannabis space, what did you have to do differently or what did you have to kind of shift or evolve in your practice to be able to, to really focus on cannabis, the cannabis industry and cannabis businesses? Yeah. So cannabis as a legal field didn't exist prior to the 2018 Farm Bill outside of states who had their own legal framework. Obviously, if you were on the West Coast, especially California or in Colorado, Washington, you know, you were practicing maybe since 2012. Mm-hmm. But for the rest of the country, this didn't exist. So it's learning an entirely new area of business law that I'd never touched before. But the good thing is nobody had. Yeah, exactly. So it was the combination of, you know, I knew the criminal side of it. I knew what would happen if anybody was found in criminal violation of any of any regulatory statute. And so it was learning regulatory compliance. And it was focusing on... Well, how, what is it that a cannabis company really needs? What is it that these, you know, because what I love is the entrepreneurs. I love the innovation of the industry. I love everybody who's got this great idea who thinks, you know, my product is going to help heal people. That is probably better than 75% of what you hear cannabis operators say. They're in it because they want to help people, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So I love that aspect. And those are the people that I want to help. I want to help the helpers. And so I I sat down and I started thinking, well, what is it that they're having issues with? and, And what can I do to make that easier? And that's how Davis Legal's vision was born, which is to help companies working in cannabis and plant medicine take their medicine, take their product and get it on the shelves to their chosen market as quickly as possible with as few legal hurdles as possible. Yeah. And so that's what I focus on. And yeah. so it was it was digging down into getting to really know what the business is like, not looking at it strictly from what the statute says or what the regulations say. One, because there aren't that many that exist, so that's not going to be very helpful to you. But two, because you really need to know what's the day-to-day like and what are the issues that are coming up for a business owner in this space that don't come up in another space. 
Yeah. And, and how did the practice evolve? I mean, where, what kind of companies were you kind of starting with? How has that mm -hmm. shifted and evolved over time? Yeah. So of course, in the beginning, it was basically people who were single operators, entrepreneurs, just interested in the idea, wanting to know what, what it would take, what the laws were, what the risks were. First question was always, am I going to go to jail? Right. <laughs> am I going to lose everything I have? Yeah. And, um, and there was a lot of conversation in the first two years about risk tolerance. And I still have those conversations with clients, but I think everybody at this point knows that if you are, if you're educating yourself, if you are getting the right help from the right people and you've got good intentions, your risk is not nearly as high as we all believed in the beginning. So, but there was, yeah, the conversation was a lot of risk tolerance, a lot of, a lot of startups in the beginning. It's evolved over time. I still like to focus on startups and entrepreneurs and, and sort of small to medium-sized businesses. I also work with a lot of ancillary businesses now, so non-plant touching sure. companies that want to be in the hemp CBD or cannabis space in general. But don't, but don't have a product of their own. They just sort of, whether it's shipping or it's credit card processing, they want to help that that market. Yeah. And what, give us a kind of a, from a legal point of view, the, the big differences between sort of ancillary, plant-touching CBD, plant-touching THC. I mean, where, mm -hmm. where, what are some of the lines that get crossed or things that you need to think about as you kind of move between these spaces? Yeah, so if you are a non-plant-touching, you know, company and you want to assist others, the issue is how are you going to vet your clients? How are you going to vet the people that you're working with to make sure that none of the regulations that you have to abide by are going to be violated by any of their actions? So so making sure that your liability shields are in place with your contracts, making sure that your agreements properly reflect the responsibilities and where the liability lies and that you know enough about your client's business to know, to create your own vetting process up front and ask the right questions to decide, is this the type of person I want to be working with or not? So that's what you're working, that's what you're looking at as an ancillary service provider. And obviously, if you have a plant touching product, there's a whole plethora of, of other things you need to be concerned with. Yeah. So if you're so if you're an ancillary service provider, product provider at mm -hmm. this point in the industry, mm -hmm. like are you still like are people still having problems with bank accounts and uh, oh, yeah. things like that? Like and like, I mean, is this how does that going to evolve, <laughs> or what needs to happen? Oh, yeah. you need to get federal legalization, or what? Like, how is that going to like if you're because I, I run into this a lot. You know, I create packages for other industries. I see cannabis mm -hmm. as a great opportunity. I want to get into cannabis. Like, it seems yeah. like, well, I'm not touching the plant. I can just do this stuff. But then they run into, um, you know, kind of a shit show in terms of business <laughs> yeah. operations, right? So like, yeah. what what are the things that, I guess, where, where are we and where might we be going in terms of being able to actually provide ancillary products and services? Yeah, absolutely. It's still a problem. I am a co-founder of a nonprofit organization, a trade association, the CBD Association. It's a 501c6. And um, it took us over a year to get to get a bank account because of who our members were going to be. And we don't obviously we don't touch a plant, right? Yeah. I'm a, I also founded a, a company called Compendium Complete, which is has a product called Cannabis Complete, which is a compliance product and helps clients be able to access all of the regulations across all 50 states both above and below 0.3% THC a lot faster than having to Google it themselves or, or yeah. know where to find it. 
So essentially, it's a it's a database, and same pro- same problem between credit card processor. We we still don't have a credit card processor for that company, <laughs> and I mean, so it's it's an ongoing problem. It's not going to be a problem that's fixed. It might be fixed by federal legalization, but I think the Safe Banking Act or some iteration of that 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 gives clear indication to the banks that they are, have a safe harbor that allows them to do business with any of these companies is what's going to do the trick. And we don't, you know, federal legalization is a much harder uphill battle. That being said, the Safe Banking Act has been tossed around for so long at this point, it feels like a similarly difficult uphill battle. <laughs> exactly. Though a lot of, you know, there there are certain people who think that it'll pass in the lame duck session after after this electoral cycle. Yeah. We'll see, you know. <laughs> are are, are we'll you making bets or? <laughs> I'm not making bets anymore. I'm, yeah, yeah. I, know, I know better than lost, that. Lost too much money on those. We're going to take a quick break to hear some words from our sponsors. And now back to our program. So as we move into, as we move into CBD, how things change, right? Because so we have, you know, farm bill, but, you know, it's still still complicated. How, how do things operate for the CBD world at this point in terms of legal considerations and you know banking and otherwise? So it's funny. A lot of people think that the farm bill made, you know, blew open the doors for the hemp yeah. and CBD industry. And it did. However, it's almost easier for, for above 0.3% THC cannabis companies to operate in states where it's been legalized and they've developed yeah. a significant framework because the regulations exist and it's a clear pathway forward. There's almost nowhere in the country that has that that level of clarity for hemp and CBD. In my home state of North Carolina, there are there are zero regulations and outside of cultivation. So that means that you've got to figure it out on your own as a business, right? Yeah. I talk about a lot of times the key is finding your own self-regulatory structure that you want to abide by for your company that matches your vision, your mission, your values, your product, your target market, and your operational concerns. So what are your points of sale? If you can take a a larger, if you can define all of that, then you can start to pick out where you're going to run into issues and develop an internal strategy for self-regulating from marketing, you know, the common things we worry about, marketing, labeling, shipping, but also even at the very basic foundational level of choosing your entity type, of talking about asset protection for your founders and your, you know, your executives. And this is something that really hasn't been talked about a lot in cannabis, but you're taking on quite a a lot of liability right now, right? If you want to operate in this space. Mm-hmm. because of the lack of regulation, because of the lack of clarity. So you want to protect yourself personally, which is very common in business otherwise, but is not talked a lot about in cannabis and is something that needs to needs to be talked about more. Asset protection is very important. Maintaining your your corporate liability shield, you know, maintaining your having your structure make sure that your corporate governance holding your meetings the way that you should every year, keeping notes of that, holding votes properly, all of that stuff helps you in the long run. And entrepreneurs in general tend to sort of 
<laughs> put that stuff on the back burner, right? You know, they're so excited about their product and, yeah. and about what they're doing. They're like, oh, that, none of that matters. Well, it matters when the rainy day comes. It matters when it all hits the fan and falls apart. And then you can't go back and, and, and do all of that over. So yeah. there's a lot more planning and a lot more intention that needs to go into developing, creating, and launching a cannabis business than, than many other businesses. I mean, I'm, I know there are highly regulated industries that require a similar amount of thought, but very few are operating with, without a net the way the cannabis industry is. So you got to do it yourself. Yeah. And what, what are the big things that come up? Uh, because, you know, I think people at this point kind of understand we're kind of in the state by state kind of, mm -hmm. uh, situation. Like, what are the big things you need to understand in terms of the differences between states and the kind of the types of states we have out there? What What's mm -hmm. the nuances or, or not so nuanced differences between some of these industries? Yeah. So your biggest differences from state to state when it comes to the hemp and CBD space are going to be your licensing structures. Who's going to be eligible to get a license? What mm -hmm. kind of licenses they give out? So some stick to just cultivation and extraction. Some include retail, some include transportation licenses. There are, like Louisiana, let's say you're an e-commerce store only and you sell CBD, wholesale CBD or even direct-to-consumer CBD and you want to sell into Louisiana, Louisiana requires that you get a retail license, even if you're just an e-commerce store and you don't have a footprint there. Wow, interesting. So if you're going to, if you're going to take a transaction and ship a product into Louisiana and you don't have a retail license, you would be in violation. Correct. Correct. New York just came out with a massive regulatory structure for hemp and CBD. That's going to be the most extensive, is the most extensive in the United States when it comes to product labeling and edibles. It's sort of their response to the lack of the FDA coming up with any of its own regulations. Mm -hmm. So, you want to, it's going to be a lot of your differences are in the labeling, the marketing, for sure, the licensing structures, and what types of products are allowed. So a lot of, you can get almost any product with hemp or CBD in it almost anywhere these days, it feels like. Mm -hmm. However, states aren't necessarily allowing those products. They have not made them, they have not permitted them. In a lot of states, they will allow certain products and then they will sort of have a catch-all for themselves which says at the end of the day we comply with the food and drug administration and so if the fda says that the can't says that a product is not permitted then we also don't permit it well the fda's position has continued to be that cannabis and cannabis derivatives of any kind cannot be in products for human or animal consumption but we all know that you can get a CBD seltzer at almost yeah. any Whole Foods in any exactly. state that there's Whole Foods. So there, you know, be aware that the language and, and the enforcement are often not aligned. I mean, it just feels like in those cases, it's th those that have the stomach to be able to do this can kind of operate in this gray zone, you know, and, and build a business, you know, gain market. But, you know, they're running the risk that, I don't know, something, something happens with the enforcement changes and all of a sudden someone says, okay, we can't, your, your business is done. Exactly. Because. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. It's about risk tolerance. It's about having the stomach for it. Mm -hmm. 
And typical lawyers tell you, well, I can't tell you to do that. You know, that's, (laughs) that's not what the law says. Exactly. And my answer tends to be, this is what the law says. And this is what the enforcement is. And this is what the market is doing. And this is what you're looking at. Should you choose to go forward with this plan Mm -hmm. and your potential exposure? Because that typical law lawyer answer of, well, I can't tell you to do that. It's against the law. It can't possibly work in this space, right? Can't work in this space. So yes, it is about, are you willing to take the risk and how much will it, how much risk are you willing to take? And for a lot of people, it pays off, mm-hmm. you know, and if they have, again, if they have good intentions, if they are testing their products and get third-party testing, if they are doing their own internal self-regulation to make sure that they're marketing within the rules and regulations, that they're labeling within the rules and regulations, that they are otherwise abiding by the law, then they're probably going to be fine, right? There's no guarantee, but they're probably going to be fine. Kind of goes with the old adage that we used to use a lot in criminal defense, which is like, break one law at a time. If you're going to drive while impaired, don't have a broken taillight and don't have your registration yeah. out of date as well. Yeah. So kind of along those lines. No, if yeah, you're going to take if you're going to take risk, do it in do it in as few categories as possible. Yeah, yeah, in measured in measured amounts. Exactly. If we had any kind of interesting, you know, kind of legal cases around some of these things, because I know some of this is like, ah, we just don't know. Like, well, this says this, this says this. When we go to court, we don't know who what's going to prevail. Like, have we had any kind of cases that have clarified, like how either state or federal governments are going to handle some of this stuff? Yeah, actually, the Ninth Circuit came out with a very interesting opinion uh, end of May between I think it's AK Futures, the company that owns Cake, and a company called Boyd Street. I hope I'm getting those names right. Anyway, case comes down to basically a company accuses another company of copyright and trademark infringement. And the, the company that is infringing says we are infringing, but they can't claim this because (laughs) it's a Delta eight product and Delta eight isn't permitted under the farm bill. Very interesting argument, right? Very interesting. And it doesn't work out, but it works out really well for the industry because the ninth circuit does some fantastic things in its opinion. First of all, it says based on the writing of the farm bill, that it's very clear any any product derived from hemp under the 0.3% limit uh-huh. is is legal no matter what no matter okay. what it is it's legal so even even if you're converting it into into delta 8 correct <laughs> it's it correct. is a product it's a, it is a hemp product okay that is their opinion that is their opinion and they say if the legislature meant something else then they That's need it. to go back and fix yeah. it because this is the way it's written. Yeah, we're not going to make up law in the judicial system. Exactly, which flies in the face of an argument that we hear a lot in the hemp and CBD space and in the cannabis space in general, which is that Delta 8, Delta 10, all these other derivatives that have come out are violating the spirit of the farm bill. Mm-hmm. And the Ninth Circuit says, no, we don't, we don't think so. Additionally to that, they, for the first time, are the first court to say that if it's a legal product, it may have a valid trademark. It may carry a valid trademark, which doesn't sound groundbreaking. But if yeah. any, anybody who's tried to get a trademark in the <laughs> hemp and CBD space, yeah, exactly. 
like, you know, I mean, usually getting a trademark, you got to jump through a thousand hoops, but this is like a million hoops. And then you're waiting for God knows how long for them to issue you a trademark. And, and I heard recently that right now they're basically not issuing any, they've just put a sort of self-imposed, you know, stop on all of it. So I'm wondering if the ninth circuit's opinion on, because they, they answer the trademark issue. Mm Mm-hmm lights a fire under the under the uspto, USPTO that says yeah. we don't we don't get to keep saying that we're in a gray area because clearly the federal government thinks we're not and the last thing they do that i love is that they say our opinion is in line with the dea which is meaning like what? meaning they believe that from the dea's own regulations and own press releases that the ninth circuit is is falling in line with the opinion of the DEA when it comes to the farm bill, that these products are legal and that the limit, the THC limit is all that matters, which takes away that sort of, you know, massive gorilla in the room that everybody's always afraid of, which is what is the DEA ultimately going to decide? And are they going to decide to crack down? Ninth circuit says no. Yeah. So what does that say? So it basically says, look, if, if the DEA tries to come in and crack down on this, we're basically not going to rule. We're going to, it is our opinion that that this is already in line with their published policy. Basically, I mean, they don't go on to say that the that if the DEA changed their position, that they would disagree. But yeah. they say that their their opinion in this ruling is in line with the DEA, which means it's going to make somebody look very silly if the DEA then comes back out and says, "No, no, no, we changed our mind." <laughs> we, we changed our mind. That's, yeah, exactly. that's, that's not, not we how we feel. <laughs> Interesting. And and that and how does this have kind of halo effect on the THC world or how is this going to impact? Because I know, you know, THC cannabis folks are running into all these kind of trademark issues and things like that. As yeah. Well. Like, is this, is this potentially crack a little light into that or? So I hope so. It's hard to tell what a Ninth Circuit opinion is going to do, how, how far that will reverberate yeah. across, you know, every eight federal agency. But I think it gives somebody a good argument to say you guys have no standing to keep denying these and if they're if it's a federally legal product you have no standing to deny this like you would deny any other product from seeking a trademark and and even more so than that because currently how most people are getting around that to get a trademark is they're just trademarking their logo right they're just Mm -hmm. trademarking their and and putting it on a like if they have a vape pen it's the the pen itself, it's the apparatus, or it's their t-shirts. I would be interested to see if somebody was willing to make the argument that this goes in, this can go beyond into actual hemp products bearing the label. And they don't just have to stick to non-plant touching products bearing the label. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that potentially is going to change things. Which is a, a huge, important thing for anybody who, you know, you create a brand, you create a product, you love your logo, you spend so much time and money giving the baby that you created a name and a look and a vibe, and then you want to protect it. And up until now, that's not really been very easy or even possible. So I'm crossing my fingers that this Ninth Circuit opinion starts giving some people some uh, some legs to stand on and push back. Yeah. Interesting. What anything else that's uh, kind of coming down the the court system here in terms of rulings or you know changes in legislation that you're watching that's really going to shape the industry over the next couple of years? Yeah. So end of summer, August, September, 
I was on a panel at the National Cannabis Festival in DC in March and watched another panel with some advocates from who work in DC and, and worked on the Moore Act. And they announced they announced that the Senate is going to come out with their own version of the Moore Act and present it towards the end of the summer is their current timeline. They were supposed to present it in May, but obviously we we don't have that yet. So now they're saying August or September. Okay. And it'll be interesting to see what they focus on. I've talked to a couple different people who are in the lobbying space and are in sort of the base of, of writing federal legislation. And I get mixed bag feelings, right? I get some people who think that it's going to be too little and too business focused and not enough, have no social justice aspects to it, which is a, a huge issue. And I have others who say that they believe that the Senate Senate's proposed bill is going to be actually very comprehensive and and a much better regulatory structure than the Moore Act. <laughs> so we'll see. I'm excited to see what it says. Duel, dueling legislation. Interesting. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's always fun when the House and Senate have their <laughs> own ideas as to how one thing is supposed to be decided and regulated. It always works out well. Yeah. Yeah. And merge, merge them at the end of the day once they get the uh, backing. But That's interesting. Great. Morgan, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about the law practice, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah, absolutely. They can go to my website, morgandavislegal.com or follow me on Instagram at morgandavislegal. Awesome. I'll make sure that the URL and the handles in the show notes here so people can get that. Morgan, thank you so much. Thank you, Bruce. I really enjoyed this. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.